it's been a while. When, I, when we first started Jericho Road, I sort of had this drum that was beaten. I used to beat all the time about the promised land. And, uh, and the, uh, I wasn't going to start here, but I guess I am now. Um, when I was going through this really tough period of my life, and it was about seven or eight years of depression, despair, and I'm never coming back to church or God or anything, certainly not Port Alboing. Absolutely not just want you to know God doesn't listen as Kat said he doesn't actually listen to all our rhetoric do you know that you can actually have a tantrum and he says I love you when you've finished um, that's one of the things we're going to think about today and, and I was just in this despairing place and um, I had this picture I, be- I was beginning to it was like smelling bread I was beginning to sense something after a long long time of dryness and and uh, I had this vision of being a slave in the shadow of a pyramid in Egypt. And it summed up my life at that point. I, I, I had been free and now I was back in slavery. And it was, I mean, I had gone through nearly suicide and then back again and um, very alone and bound up. And God, this voice said to me, and I was in these slave clothes in the shadows of this very dusty, hot pyramid seen in Egypt and a voice said to me what are you doing here I knew it was God and I didn't appreciate the question really but I didn't say anything and he said what are you doing here and God's also able to take attitude by the way so he's not that bothered some people think he can't handle you he can on your worst day doesn't make it right I'm just telling you it's not like he's out of his depth and so he said, what are you doing here? And I didn't answer and, and I, I was hurt and angry and all the rest of it like we get. Um, and he said, open your shirt. And I opened the slave shirt and there was a big Superman emblem on my chest. And he said, uh, you've forgotten your identity. And as he said that, there were these like demonic presences around me like these car sales things, you know, with air in them as you see outside car dealerships. And they kind of all just collapsed and they used a word I can't use now because you'll be offended but they went he knows and uh, it was like I grew 10 feet and and it was it was the most amazing thing it was just like now walk out of here and it took another two years of all kinds of experience to begin to in the process of reclaiming that identity and so one of the sort of themes of I think my life after that has been to say God has set us free to take hold of the promised land and enter into the promised land. But one of the biggest problems we have, I believe, is we, we have set ideas of how God works and what the promised land looks like and what freedom looks like and we get discouraged very, very quickly. We also are, I think, control freaks somewhat and so if things don't work out very quickly then we give up if things don't go according to what we anticipate then we give up God doesn't love us and it's not right and I just want to encourage us today through talking about Caleb to, to maybe be aware of those tendencies because sometimes what we do is we actually sabotage the very things God wants for us and we drag it out Graham Cooks talks about saying you know, in the, in the Christian life you never fail you just get to try again so you have a test of your circumstance and if you don't 
if, if you can't make that test, he just, get, he just waits until you try again until you actually succeed. So the success in one sense is how quickly we learn some things. Because I learned over eight years one thing real clear and that whining to God, stamping my foot and trying to blackmail him into how much I'm suffering and what I've done for him and why I deserve this doesn't work. It is the most waste of time because he has a God of truth. And so he's not really into our human pity parties and manipulative techniques to get what we want. He just waits for us. And he waits for us to be open so that he can actually lead us into the next thing. So we have these guys who they have spent their whole lives, they've spent 400 years in slavery and they get out of Egypt through the blood of the Lamb which is the foretelling of Jesus. Because I've been at Bethel for the last they always go, did you know? Uh, How did you know? I don't know, it's it's just sometimes. Anyway, um, I'll, I'll talk a bit about that trip in a minute but so many of us and so many people find their need for God when they're in a difficult circumstance and then they become really spiritual. God, if you do this, I'll go and serve you in the Sunday school or whatever. And there's an element of when we're, we're struggling or when we're in captivity of some kind, we're all for God set me free. But once we get into freedom, that's the challenge. What are we going to do with the freedom? And I'm sure if Jesus were here right now, he, he, says, he would say to you, you know, how many of you want to be free? How many of you are free? And you go, now I'm free. So he says, so, so now what are you going to do with your freedom? Because if you believe in Jesus, you actually are free. You are totally free right now. You have all joy, all peace, all overcoming, everything you need. Well, I don't feel like it. Well, that's a different question. So the question to ask is why am I going around saying I don't feel like it? You see, you're going into the promised land but the promised land is also our, us. And I was talking to somebody the other day and said, well, when you say yes to Jesus, you know, everything changes. And I said, yes, it does and it doesn't. Paul says you're, going to be, you're being saved, you were saved, you are being saved, you will be saved. It's a process of growing. So life is the place in which God does the refining and enables us to grow in our freedom. But if you start from the place of I am free, then if I'm not feeling free, that becomes the place where God starts saying, well, let's work on that. He says, God, what is your will for my life? And he says, well, why don't you take the next step? And one of the things we tend to do and one of the things we tend to get caught in is that our steps are defined by our circumstances and God says, I'm actually wanting to define you by who you are from the inside out. So if you are free and Jesus is in you and he is free and his spirit is in you so that you have all power, then there's nothing around you that should actually change that. Because that's an unconditional condition that comes from heaven and is birthed by the spirit. So if anything around me and any relationship and any circumstance is taking out my freedom, then guess who's responsible? I am. And that should be a word of freedom, you see, because your freedom doesn't depend on anyone else. And your freedom doesn't depend on any other circumstance. And your freedom and your happiness doesn't depend on anything. You don't, have, you don't need money. You don't need education. You don't need everything to go perfect because 
you have been set free. So live free. Well, it's easier said than done. Absolutely. So whatever's stealing your freedom becomes the place God wants to work so that you can find victory there. Our habitual response to life is victim. Our habitual response to circumstance is blame. God's actually wanting to release in all of us love and joy and peace. But he also said something really simple. Jesus said too. He said, you cannot follow me in your own strength. Ever. So if I'm not actually knowing joy and fullness and freedom, that's a clue that I might be leaning on my own understanding and my own strength rather than the Spirit of God. And so I have to keep on... Cat made a... I never thought I'd quote Cat, but here we go, Cat. This is a wonderful moment. <laughs> Where she made a very profound statement, which she said... I never saw myself as a teacher with kids, but Jesus did. And one of the questions we need to ask ourselves is, God, how are you seeing me? Because this is how I'm seeing me. And he might be saying, I mean, I never saw myself back here doing this in in, in, in Poraboni. Just because you see something like you do and you feel something is not necessarily God at all. How many of you live by your emotions? How many of you think if you feel it, it must be true? Well, it's true for you, but it's sort of a very small truth. It's not worth basing much on. I wouldn't base much on my feelings. So if you led by your feelings, stop it. Acknowledge your feelings, but stop it. Because they have zero authority. They might authenticate a few things, and they're lovely to have sometimes, not always. But they're not something to live by. So we come to this place where these guys have been set free. They have these amazing miracles of being fed in the desert and they've been, you know, manna from heaven. Well, no, no, that's not yet, I don't think. But it's it's just, they've had this great time. The The biggest challenge with Christianity is it's a great theory. G.K. Chesterton is often quoted where somebody wrote to the paper and said, what's wrong with the world? And he wrote, this is often quoted, And he just wrote two words, I am. We're going to talk about vision for the church and people want great plans, Jericho Road. What is our plan? Our plan is very simple. What we said outside, I'll say it again next week. To be family, to encounter God, to impact the world. What's our big program? You are. What's the program to change Port Alberni? You are. I am. Like if God is, and, 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 and that was part of the vision that uh, Randy gave. To make an impact in the world is very simple. Get on fire for Jesus and change something. Show people that it's different. Something I came across that I sent to Wayne and Ev, a guy who's doing a lot of work in transformation with drug addiction and stuff. And one of the things he was saying was all addictions were driven by experiences rooted in the limbic system of the brain. And he said, the trouble is that we try and change people by educating them alone and they, don't ha- they cannot change by education alone. You have to give them another experience. And God came into the world to give us an experience of love that would trump all the other negative experiences. So we need to not only know something but to have it embedded in our hearts and that's how the Holy Spirit works. That's where the Spirit comes into play. 
so that you know that you know that you know. And the way that you know who God is, is you have to live life. And when you're not knowing it, then you have to keep on saying, Lord, why am I not knowing this? And why I'm not knowing this sometimes is I have to unlearn some of my defenses that cause me to survive. Christianity is incredibly pragmatic, very honest and very real. Religion wants to just keep it all very tidy, private, personal, and insipid. So you have in Numbers 13, which is where uh, they were sent out to explore the land. This whole, we're, we're free, we're free, we're free, you know, and they, they were free. They got, the, the, the Egyptians even gave them gold. They got all kinds of resources and now they were going out in their freedom and it didn't take long before they were arguing. They sent out to explore the land. We went into the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. You remember the story? The leaders of the tribes were selected. They were all leaders. And they were sent out into the land. Under, we don't have time to go into all the detail, but Moses sent them out with instructions. Go and explore the land, see what's there, and then come back with a report. And they came back with a report and they said, it's the, land. the land is fantastic, but... The people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there and the Malachites lived in the Negev. The Hirites, Jebusites and Amorites live in the hill country. Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. There are lots of people. They're big. It's not the promise we thought. I'm going to take time out every minute and say, so where's your life today? How are you living in the promise of God or is it not going as you thought? If it's not going as you thought, you're probably in God's will. If it's going as you thought, you've got way too much control, your sights are really small, and your faith is pathetic. How's that? Everybody's led, you know. Oh yeah, never mind. You go to Bethel in Reading, it's this explosive place, and there's so many people there who say, we've sold everything, come here, we felt the Lord leading us here. And I kind of want to say, I bet you he wasn't. It's just a hell of an easy place to be led. There's so much good here, there's so much easy stuff. to. I, I'm being a little cynical, but I'm not really meaning it that way, but I just think it's very easy to be led into the sunshine. When there's a dying world around us, and there's a message in that that I'm going to tie up in a minute, the perverse encouragement of this is the normal Christian life is full of challenges. And the, the promises and purposes of God are always through the challenges. How are people going to know that Jesus is alive? By extraordinary people in the same challenges that they have, finding hope and peace, not being overcome. God is not interested in you and me being in wonderful circumstances all the time. He's interested in people who are going to shine for him, be warriors for him in a world that is broken, confused and very, very lost, very unfair and full of trials and tribulations. And he's just going to say really simply, have you laid down your life or haven't you? And you're going to say, yes, I went up for prayer and I had hands laid on me and I've laid down my life. And he says, why are you whining? Well, it's getting difficult. Yeah? So now what? Well, I don't like it. It hurts. I've said to you, come to me. So you're going to learn through this that you can't do anything on your own. 
I could give you lots of examples, but I would embarrass people because I've been doing this for 40 years now, including myself. I could give you lots of examples of I felt God speak to me so powerfully on Sunday and I went up for prayer and I'm going to serve him and by Thursday it's all over because it wasn't what I thought. Or I want to do this ministry work and you say, well, go and teach at Sunday school for a year. What do you mean, be there every Sunday? Yeah. Oh, I don't know about that. Well, then don't sign up for anything. If you can't do the little hidden things, you're not going to do the other things. The principles of God are really, really simple. Everything about God's spirit alive in us is manifest through human behavior, is manifest through relationships. That's another message I have for this church, just to encourage us again. If we want to see spiritual breakthrough, if you want to see impact in Port Alberni, then guard your relationships. I'm going to talk about that next week. Guard your your relationships. Our relationships matter. They're not optional extras. But let me come back to that because we, we live in this incredibly self-world. It's me and God. But nothing in the scriptures actually says that. He says, I love you, but he never says, walk on your own. So these guys go into the, in, into the hill country and, they, and, and, and some of them are coming back and they're the same people in the same country. They've all been slaves. They've all come into this place. They've all gone into the promised land to explore it. They've all come back and ten of them are saying, the land's flowing with milk and honey, but the people, they scare me to death. What's the biggest problem? People. People always get in the way. People are always the problem. For those of you who they, or you know people, they go into the, the hills and they go, oh, I, just, I, I, I don't go to church, I worship God in the hills. No, you're not. You're just running away from people. It's not difficult to worship God in the mountains. It's worshiping God amongst difficult people. That's when it counts. Easy to worship God in Mexico. Easy to worship God on the hills or the ski slopes. Oh, Jesus, I just love seeing you here. He says, yeah, I know, but get down the mountain and do something. You're running away from all those people. I love people. I didn't come here for trees. I came here for you. So, they go out and Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored because people without vision and without passion will always spread a bad report. They will attack Caleb and they will attack the message and they will attack the circumstances and they will pretend that it's anointed. I will just make one word about the elections for the council and those who are sitting on council and elders. If your mission is to keep me honest or the council honest or anybody else honest, don't stand. You're not good enough for that role. The only reason we stand is to serve. And the only reason we stand is to say, I want to see God's power and his presence in this place and I just want to contribute. Everything about God, His Spirit, His presence is manifest in how we show up. I wish it weren't so. But that's ultimately it. And Caleb showed up and he said, we have been set free from Egypt. We have 
been protected right through till here. God has promised us this land. Let's go and take it. And the others said, no, but the people are too big. And Caleb, I think, would say, our God is greater. And then they said, because they never talked to them. I mean, this is all mind talk, which is how we live. They see us as grasshoppers. We feel like grasshoppers. They are giants. And God is trying to say to them, my people, my people, my people whom I love, you are still thinking and living and walking and anticipating as slaves. Your thoughts are slaves' thoughts. They're not freedom thoughts. You're going to have to learn how to change your identity so that you become free and strong and confident in my faithfulness. Because what he was trying to say to them was, you guys are the giants. And eventually when they went to Jericho and they met Rahab, she said, everybody's afraid of you. But at this point, they were getting, that was a lot of time later, that's 40 years later. They still believed that God wasn't going to be faithful through the stuff that they faced, which looked very threatening. I want to encourage you, if your life looks threatening at this time, if your life looks there are things that are unexpected for you. And I'm speaking from that place myself. I'm not going to say anymore, but I'm speaking from that place. I'm speaking from a place of unexpected things happening. And I have to say, God, you are faithful. See, what we often want to do in the Christian church um, is run away until it's all sorted out and then we come back. But we're meant to be people who walk together into whatever life brings. And so Caleb and Joshua are these two who stand there and they bear witness to God's faithfulness. Same journey, very different outcomes. I want to suggest to you that we see probably 25% of what's actually going on on a good day. Most of what's going on around us we probably don't see too clearly. So it's wiser to release what is going on to one who does see it all. Because our perceptions, our feelings, our emotions, our even understanding and interpretations are often very flawed. We often panic. Somebody wrote this about Numbers 14. It says, he said, Numbers 14 addresses this mindset that God, God says here in essence, if I have promised something to you, I will provide a way for you to obtain it. Yet by your own choosing you have refused what I offer. Therefore you will never inherit what I've promised. You're destined to wander in a wilderness you've chosen for yourself. That's scary. See, one of the things we do is we put too much onus on God in the wrong times. Jesus said to the disciples, follow me. And in their following of him over three years, they ended up all kinds of things they had to work out. And then after that, they also had to work stuff out. The answer to your life is not in your head, although your thinking matters. It's in your heart. But your heart is changed by your thinking. And your heart and thinking are changed by your circumstances and relationships. Nothing's abstract. If I want to know how you're doing, I'll just walk with you for a few days see what comes out. I mean, you can say whatever you like. I can say whatever I like, but ultimately what comes out of us is what is true in us. In your company and in my company, do you experience faith and hope? Do you experience bitterness, ugliness, complaining, 
depression, despair, or whatever. Now, if that's where you are and in your company you're sharing that, then that becomes a journey we share together. So it's authentic. But we're always wanting to go to that place where we say, I want to know God's victory. I want to know his joy. I want to know a lightness even in the midst of my struggles. And I actually need you as part of that journey. Because I need to turn up and together, you know, you worship, I worship, and God touches me and says, don't give up. I was playing squash with a guy yesterday. He's not a Christian. I've known him for a long time. We had a beer afterwards. We always do that. That's why we play squash. But, um, uh, and, uh, it was very surprising because he wouldn't normally say this. He said, I said to my wife today, John's going to be okay. Kind of moves moves me because he shouldn't say that. He he does you know it's not somewhere. And I said to him, that's that's God speaks like that. Out of the strangest places. You see, Caleb and Joshua we were speaking into a situation where they had lost their faith. And we're going to be people who one day we'll be Caleb and Joshua, and other days we'll be the other ones. I don't see how this is going to work. And we're going to need a Caleb and Joshua to say, but God. And we will all be in both camps at different times, which is why we need one another. The remarkable thing about Caleb and Joshua, I mean, can you imagine, how many of you have given up on your promises? Have you got any promises that you've said, oh, I thought that was going to happen, it hasn't happened. And you got the promise three months ago? And these guys... We're given a promise about taking this land and God said eventually you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And Caleb and Joshua hold on to the promise. Do you know how many fat Christians there are who are watching TV, eating donuts, depressed because they go, I used to remember that it was God but now he hasn't fulfilled my promises, I've given up. The most amazing thing about Caleb is that he kept his faith. He kept his expectation. I don't know how he did it. You wander around. If I was wandering around with a bunch of people who said, no, we're not going into the land and now I'm stuck in the desert with you, I'd probably have attitude. Thanks a lot. We could be having milk and honey and now we're stuck in a sand dune. Hallelujah. Forty years. Four years. A sand trap maybe, yes. Forty years. And then when, the, when it does break open, there's Caleb first in line. I'm 85. Oh, I retired 25 years ago. I'm 85. I'm still full of vigor. I'm still ready to fight. I'm gonna want, I want my inheritance. You know what would have happened if we ran this thing today? All right, uh, there's not enough faith for you guys to go into the promised land you guys are wandering in the desert for 40 years. Caleb and Joshua would start up their own church, say, we're going to go in. God's led us and we're going because he's anointed us to do this and we're going to go in and they would have been killed within a few years because the independent mind spirit and if God's telling me, then it must be about me and God's saying, no, you can't do it without them. How did that get down in our lives? That God starts saying to you and to me, I don't want you to, I don't want to just hear you talking to me about you. 
I want to hear you talking to me about how you can actually share with your tribe so that all together you can go somewhere. I don't want another spiritual selfie. Thank you very much. Me and Jesus. And Jesus says, it wasn't me actually. I don't do selfies. How about the clue to progress in your life is how you linked up with the rest. How much you care about the others taking the land as well. We cannot do this Christian life on our own. I believe one of the things that God's wanting to encourage us with is saying, this is a year of, of impacting Port Alberni. How are we going to impact our Port Alberni? We'll have a fate or we'll have this or we'll have that. And I think it's really simple. Just go and impact it. What do you mean? Go and shine. Show them how good Jesus is. Serve. Do something humble. Do, some, do whatever you want to do. Just go and impact the community. What will happen is you'll have a mixed blessing because you'll have struggles and you'll have victories and then you'll find you need God and you need other people and then you just learn something beautiful. You're not on your own. So the journey into all God has for us is through conflict, is through fear, is through challenge, is through difficult circumstances. And all of that is designed to enable us to be a people who become fearless. And so we don't see anything as this is the end of the road, we just see it as another challenge. And we don't give up on the promise because it hasn't happened or it hasn't been delivered yet. We just go, then we're going to carry on. Eugene Peterson talks about a long journey in the same direction. Christianity is tough. God is tough. In a good way. He's not beaten and neither are we. We stumble but we don't get crushed to death as Paul says. We persevere. I'll talk a little bit, just, just a few minutes on, on this trip to Bethel because I was just wanting some space out and time out and, and went down there because it's a place where there's some, uh, there's some vibrancy and some uh, life and worship. And, uh, it, you know, actually being there for four weeks, it's, a, it's normal people gathering together. There's some success, successes, there are not some successes. 20 years ago, 30, 25 years ago, Bill Johnson, who's the pastor there, lead, I mean, we've been, not that he knows me and I know him, but we've been to the same conferences for all our lives. I mean, he talks about going to a John Wimber conference in Orange County in 1986 and I was at the same one. And I go, well, look at what happened to him and look what happened to me. I'm going to moan too. Um, but uh, lots of the same kind of uh, touch points but it wasn't long after, you know, the first thing that happened when, uh, you know, Bethel went into a phase when he arrived was they're going to go after renewal and revival. I still have a problem with those words, but never mind. A refreshing of God's spirit, people alive for God, basically, and for Jesus. And so, um, you know, t- I think 2,000 people left the church and then more came in, which is always the case. As soon as you put down the, you, 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 you put something down, people get offended. And Christians are the most incredibly, I mean, if you want to meet people who get offended, go to churches and meet Christians. They are the most, I don't know, it's so easy to offend a Christian. It's pathetic. 
Anyway, they should be un- with no offense, of course, but when the rubber hits the road. Anyway, so it's good sometimes to offend, then they leave and then you don't have to deal with them anymore and then you can carry on. So that's one way of, of helping church growth is just offend the ones who need to go because they're just dead weight anyway. So, you know, um, people who criticize and don't do anything, as far as I'm concerned, go away because it's just dead weight. On the other hand, we have to love each other because we're criticizing out of our pain. So don't go away. Because we need to be able to have the freedom to wrestle with those questions and those struggles. So I'm actually pained if anybody goes away, to be honest. Because it means we failed each other. But one of the things that happened was that you know Bill Johnson said, let's start a school and he brings in Christopher Lawton who starts, and he's a rough diamond and, 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 and he starts the Supernatural School of Ministry which is 46 people the first year and now 20 years later it's 2,400. And then they, they said, you know, we've got the School of Ministry and we've got, uh, we've got some revival talking but we need, you know, people are hurting. They're people who are actually like our I am second. They need more than just what we're giving them and so they bring in Danny Silk who, who begins to develop the human resources, transition house, places where people can actually take, be helped to take hold of the truths they've heard. They've got this huge ministry around there. And then they have, you know, the, 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 the Eric Johnson, who's now one of the sons as, as, a, as, a, as the lead pastor of the church. And he's also quite deaf. And a son who's uh, leading the worship, Brian Johnson, who has had struggles with depression. Why, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm saying that for a reason. The reason I'm saying it is people who still have struggles in the midst of a declaration that God heals. Chris Gore came on from New Zealand who does the healing ministry. I was incredibly moved. I was walking across the Sundial Bridge one day and I came back into the car park and uh, this guy was wheeling uh, somebody into the side of a, of a, of a van and I, I walked past and I looked back and I saw it was Chris Gore. He's got a daughter who's probably 25 who's been in a chair all her life. He's the head of the healing ministry. And that isn't a reason not to. But boy, it is a reason not to. And so for me, because people kind of, you know, Bethel is a place of refreshment. It's not perfect. But those things actually make me more confident of drinking from that well. And so I did and, and I went to lots of services and they're just bigger versions of what we do here and there's different degrees of, oh, that was good or not. Um, but all they are committed to is saying we want to press into God's supernatural presence and his healing. And, but most of the services are not at all wacky. I mean, they're not freaky at all, really. So part of our growth is exposing ourselves to what God's doing elsewhere so that we actually can grow in our own sense of, oh, there's more. And we can also dial down some on some of our fears because believe it or not, many of the, the, the things that get in our way are our own insecurities and fears which we wrap up in theology or our disappointments. So, and there was a guy, uh, the, the, one of the youth pastors there called Tom Crandall, 
Uh, he's been there for 12 years as a youth pastor, and he made a, he made quite. I was I was uh, I went to the school of ministry for for four days, which was the first year, and you go into this civic centre, which again Bethel has not, is now running for the city because the city couldn't afford it. The impact of this church on the city is amazing. They have I mean they have four or three or four fully equipped. Uh, vans and equipment that they go out with their students to do cleanups around the... I mean, there's a million dollars in that. They, they upgraded all the equipment in Red Civic Center. That's another million dollars. And they host non-Christian stuff. They said, we will serve you even if we don't agree with you. Uh, they gave over $500,000, I believe, to the, the police department to help support something because it was struggling. So there's a huge impact that, and it's taken time to build trust because there's a lot of skepticism that you guys come with strings attached. And so this guy, Tom Crandall, anyway, he was, so you, know, you have 1,200 students there every day and then they have 800 second year and four, 400 interns in the third year, all between the ages of 20 to 35 with a sprinkling maybe of people my age and younger. So there's a hunger, and they're from 50 different countries. People are hungry for authentic expression of God and a place where they can experiment and, and, and grow. So, Tom Crandall was speaking to these kids, and, and I mean, it's a lovely... I, I said, I want to speak to them. I don't want this up here. Oh, I can only see it. Um, and he was sort of saying, well, Bill Johnson, you know, have you seen Bill Johnson? He, he, he stands up there and he talks. He said, he doesn't move very much. He speaks in monotone. And he says, I mean, I'm, I'm loving Bill Johnson, but all he's saying is the kids go in there and they go, oh my word. So he was really just saying Bill Johnson needs to be interpreted to the young people. And it's recognizing that, you know, one voice can't speak to a whole body, which is why we need somebody to take this and make it real for this person and somebody else to take it and make it real for this person. That's how we help each other. That's how we interpret. That's how we kind of make it richer. And so that's how the body grows. That's how you take the promised land. It's never on my own. And that's why God wouldn't let Joshua and Caleb. And so probably the richest time for me, and I wrote about it and I'm going to close with this, but uh, was when I, when I was in a, a lineup at the right at the beginning of my time there, um, there was a lineup for the Randy Clark's uh, healing school in the evenings because I didn't pay to go and the evenings were open for everybody. And I was with these bunch of people and often in public settings I kind of just go quite quiet. I, I'm just sort of quite reserved actually. It, dep it depends on my mood but I'm usually less social than I would like to be. But I sort of like work on it occasionally. Anyway, I was talking to some people and, and the guy, I, I said I'd come to Canada when I was 1985 and and he said, oh, that's when I was born. And uh, he'd just come in from Montana a while ago. And I didn't really pay much attention to him, actually. Um, there were these two guys there. That One was an extroverted character, quite a character. And uh, that was that. And then I think I saw him one more time. His name ended up being William, the guy I wrote about. And the, the following Sunday, the, the Saturday, I'd sat in my room and you know the treasure hunt game where you say, okay, Lord, give me some pictures so that I can sort of maybe give a word to somebody. 
And uh, you might get a, a picture of a, a yellow sweater and uh, a woman in her 40s or a guy in his 20s. Anyway, the only thing I remembered was a, 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 t-shirt, a, a Nike hoodie with a big swoosh on it. And it was something about encouragement. And that was Saturday. Nothing sort of transpired. On Sunday evening, I was at Bethel uh, attending, uh, ready to attend their 6 o'clock service and uh, having coffee outside. And I see William and he's you know, he's walking down the passageway and he comes over to me and I say, and he's wearing a swoosh, a Nike. He's wearing that hoodie. Um, and I say, how are you? Because the other two times he'd all been quite up. And he was, well, well, not so great because I was on the bus and I had this Bible and these books and, and I just, you know, bought, bought them and I forgot them on the bus and, and now they lost because I left them on the bus and... and I went back and they're gone. And so I said, oh, I, I, I had a sort of prophetic word for somebody wearing a top like yours, but I can't remember what it was. Um, but I think it was, it was encouraging. <laughs> it was a great delivery. And then about a minute later, as I'm sitting there, I kind of go, William, why don't you just go and buy those books from the bookstore? I don't have any money. You go and I'll pay for it. And he just went, What? I knew it wasn't going to be that much, so you know what? So I said, go, go, go and select all the books you lost, and I'll just come and pay for it in a minute. So he did. He went in there, and and his whole countenance changed. And he, you know, and it was a blessing to me. He got the books, and he, you know, he told me his story of of uh, growing up on the north northwest of around Seattle or somewhere. But his mother was a drug addict. His father was a drug addict. Hello, William, because I know you're going to listen to this. Um, uh, his father is still alive. His mother died quite a few years ago and uh, he pretty much copped out a home after about 16 or 17 and started riding freight trains and running around North America. Became a drug addict, alcoholic of some kind, I'm not sure of the detail, and uh, wandered around for years. And... Uh, Really, it was when he went to Montana after 15 years, maybe. Um, he came into a little church in Montana, and the pastor had also been a recovering addict. I mean, he wasn't anymore, but he welcomed him in, and that was the beginning of change. Because I want to say real clearly, everything God does deeply in the human heart, he does through other human hearts. There are people around your life that God is saying, if you don't show up for them, maybe nobody will. This thing is not private. And if, it, if you're not bubbling over into other people's lives, then it's probably not Jesus really at work. Because he does. He just can't help it. He's effervescent. You can't hold him in. And a lot of the healing that we're asking him to do will come as we give away what we've got. And so William, you know, uh, he, he had come eventually to Bethel and he was hanging out there but he's, you know, he, when he, he told me about the books he said normally I just get on a train now. I said why? You just come down here you settled here There's a, there are resources here you should be going to the school here and uh, you stop getting on these trains William. My very empathic you know, father figure that I am and so he said uh, no I'm not going to leave and then I said to him, why don't you come to the school next week? So he came with me to the school and, and these 1,200 people and they do the first course and then they have a half an hour of worship and, then, and I'm looking at him and he's, he's, he says, I, I've got tears in my eyes. So why? 
He said, I, I, I've never seen anything like this. School for me is negative. It's bullying and it's failure. And this is called school. And look at it. I didn't expect that response from him. And he said, I need to come here. And something broke off him. And he kind of went, I need to come here. So a few days later, because it's selfish, I'm on my own as well. So I said, let's go out to, let's go out to um, Shasta Lake and see the caves. There's some caves up there on a Friday. So we went out. We went to these caves and we were coming back. And, and we had a great day. It was a beautiful day. We, we're coming back. And just as we got off the, 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 the ship, the, the boat that had taken us across the lake, um, I looked across and I saw, can you put this up? The tree? I saw that. It's not very clear, but it's a dead tree. It looks like a dead tree right on the water line. And I said to the driver, and I said to William, I'm going to take a picture of that. I know God's saying something. He doesn't know it. And I looked at it, um, and he said, no, it's a cottonwood tree. It's just winter. And God was saying to me, There's a d- that, that looks like a dead tree right next to all the resources it needs for life. There's all the water it needs, and it looks dead. And he just said very simply, you know there's seasons. And sometimes you have all the resources, you're in the right place, and that's what you look like. And that you're totally in my will. Next day, I went up to the healing rooms and was looking through some cards. Do you want to put the next one up, please? Um, and saw this picture. And God said, turn it upside down. And it's like the tree in the lake. And he says, you know, when I, that's how I see that tree. I see the blossoming of the root system that's going to release fruit in the future. And I just want to say to you, God's perspective on your life is not the same as yours and mine. When things seem, nothing seems to be happening above the surface, all kinds of things can be happening below the surface. Some things you might be aware of, much of it you might not be aware of, but don't lose faith. God is faithful. And somebody might need to hear that today. He's working on your root system. It's not over. So I was walking with William across this uh, bridge on the Sacramento River and people always fly fishing there and he's already told me his story. And I get this idea you know, William, maybe you should get a fishing rod and fly fish. Just do something crazy. He's got a grandfather who lives in Seattle and, and he's done quite a few things with his granddad. But I said, you know, I just see you with a fly fishing rod and, and, and just enjoying the Father's presence and doing something for fun because you've been surviving for so long. Yeah, that would be great. I've done a bit of that. And, and then we left it there. So I'm having coffee the next day and I'm on my own and I'm going, maybe I should go and look for a fly fishing rod for this guy. So I go to Dick's Sporting Goods and there's thousands of these, these fishing rods. And then I looked up where else to go and there's a place called the Fly Shop. So I go all the way down Churn Creek Road to the Fly Shop and you walk into the Fly Shop and you go, oh my word, this is the most expensive fishing. It's the best in America. It, you know, you go into these high class shops and they've just got, they're lovely. And all the, you know, all the flies are there and there are about 15 guys in little blue shirts saying, can I help you? And you kind of go, oh my word. And so I sort of was looking around saying, um, I want to set, a, uh, set up a guy for fly fishing and, uh, you know, what would it cost? And the guy said, well, probably 
between five and seven hundred dollars. Oh. Thank you very much. I'll come back. So I drank a lot of coffee at that four weeks. But anyway, I was sitting again having coffee maybe a day later. And it was like God says, so how's the fly fishing thing going with William? So well, it might be on hold. And uh, $500, let's say $600 for fly fishing equipment. Um, And he says, uh, so what's the price? How high do you go? It was a really cool conversation. It wasn't, and I, I just pondered it and he said, you know, what this is about is it, um, it's about William going into a store that he's never been in and getting something from a father. What's the price? He said, you know, when I was welcoming my prodigal son home, I didn't give him Walmart sandals and a second-hand cloak and a plastic ring. I gave him the best I had because I meant it. He's my much-loved son and I'll give him the best of what I have. And I just said, sure. I'd love to take him there. He'll spend $700 on him for a fly fishing rod and it'll be a pleasure and a joy. I can't wait to do it. So I told, I met, I met, uh, I, I met William, the ne- I think it was the next, the Sunday, and I, I said, I think tomorrow, tomorrow we need to go and get that rod. And we're going to go to the store. And I told him the story and he was incredibly moved. As, as was I and as am I. And then that night he decided he couldn't stay at the mission where he was staying and he bailed out because the big bugs and, and it's a difficult circumstance and he slept down by the river. And so the following day I said, you know, William, it seems a bit ridiculous me going to buy you a $600 of fly fishing rods when you need a place to stay. So maybe we'll just put that to you ra- a month's rent while you sort yourself out. So that's actually what happened. I put him in a motel for two nights and then he, he's just actually got set up in a place where he's going to get support and help and we've paid the rent. And I said, we'll do the fly fishing rod next time. So on Sunday, just before I came home, I, I, you know, I was taking him home and I said, William, give a test me to my church so I can show them who you are. <laughs> 